Hello everyone, welcome back to the CYDC podcast. I am one of your hosts, Arushi. And I'm Mike. And we are back with our second episode today. So as you can tell from the title, today's topic is anxiety. Everyone's favorite and one of the biggest things that we work on and talk to kiddos about at the CYDC also. So Mike, I'm curious, before we get started, have you ever experienced anxiety before? Yes, I experienced anxiety all the time, but uh, particularly I I get anxiety over watching the Leafs play, the Toronto Maple Leafs, because it doesn't matter. Honestly, it doesn't matter whether they're winning 4-1, 5-1 in the third period. There's still a chance that they might end up losing. Uh, and that's based on recent experiences and history of being a Leafs fan. It's, a lead is never safe. So uh, I think I get a little bit anxious sometimes watching Leafs games kind of as the clock comes down a little bit and you're like, okay, there's 10 minutes left. They're up by three, but like they've blown this lead before. So, you know, it's never safe, never safe watching the Leafs. That's valid. And I noticed you have your Leafs on shirt today. I know the listeners can't see, but is there a game coming up today? Is this like a good luck shirt for your anxiety? Like what's what's going on here? Yeah, yeah, there's a game tonight. I just figured I'd wear just, I don't know. I was just in the mood to wear a, a Leafs shirt, even though I knew no one else was watching. I <laughs> guess I was like, I, you know, if I were to go out today, this is probably the shirt that I would wear. So I try to, you know, be as professional as possible for this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> really, yeah. <laughs> so awesome. ha- have you ever experienced any anxiety before? I have, yeah. Literally right before we started recording this, <laughs> I... <laughs> Definitely felt a bit of nerves and anxiety there, but I think kind of now that we've dived into things a little bit, feeling a little bit better. How about you? Was it a bit nerve wracking to kind of start off that first episode in comparison to how we are now? Yeah, I think so. I think it's obviously a little bit nerve wracking, like just knowing how it's going to turn out or like maybe how difficult it might be. But uh, Mm -hmm. after we kind of started and started getting rolling, it became much, much easier. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I think like those those anxious feelings for me have turned a little bit into like excitement. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm excited to talk about this podcast and future podcasts because, you know, it was such a good experience. So, yeah, good on us for, for facing our fears and getting it done despite that anxiety. For sure. For sure. So should I kick it off with like kind of talking about what anxiety is then? Yes, please. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. So I think it'd be important to first define what anxiety is. And so anxiety, as kind of we had talked about, is a common experience for everyone, but usually it doesn't last too long. Um, And anxiety is the worried, scared or nervous feeling you have when you have to do something and you're unsure if you can do it or uh, it could be even if you're going somewhere and you're kind of you've never been there or it kind of makes you anxious, kind of those feelings um, kind of leading up to going there, whether it's school or work or anything. Um, that's kind of the common experience of anxiety. And it can it can feel very different for everyone. Some people get the sweaty palms. Some people get a tummy, tummy ache. I don't know about you, but for me, I get the butterflies in my chest and kind of in my stomach. That's kind of how I get uh, anxiety. Oh, yeah. Literally right before this, as I was mentioning with the anxiety, I definitely had a bit of a tummy ache for sure. Mm -hmm. And so and so examples of anxiety include anxious thoughts, predictions, beliefs or um, thinking about feared situations. Um, And I like to think this about worries that are um, about future events that may or may not happen. Like, you know, if I'm uh, leading up to this podcast, I might be worried that I'm going to like stumble and make a mistake and 
maybe embarrass myself a little bit or, you know, saying a speech like that's a very uh, common uh, potential fear as well. But it's not a fear that's happening right now. It might be a fear that I'm worrying about in the future, which may or may not happen. And as, as mentioned, you know, there are some of these physical uh, reactions that we have, like our heart, your heart might be racing, you might get shortness of breath. I know that happens to me sometimes before I participate in our classes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you kind of get a little bit anxious as you're preparing to participate. Um, and and so all of these things can kind of come together and lead us to avoid some of these activities. So, you know, if you are nervous or anxious about, um, about presenting in class or participating in class, you might have an idea in your head and you might not raise your hand or participate. Or if you're scared of dogs and maybe you have that fear of, of, of anxiousness of maybe a dog is going to bite you if you see it or whatever it may be, you might even like avoid the dog park on the way to school and you might take the long route around or, um, and some of these activities can kind of become a little bit challenging in the long run. Yeah. And I think also, I know earlier, Mike, you kind of mentioned that anxiety is a very common experience for everyone, but it generally doesn't last very long. But I think I would say anxiety, I guess, becomes a bit more tricky and troublesome when the impacts of it are long lasting. And they influence things like our work, school, social relationships, um, even regular daily tasks. Um, anxiety can have a way of kind of getting in the way of those and messing with that. And in terms of anxiety itself, there's it presents itself in many different ways. I mean, as we know, there's generalized anxiety disorder, um, social anxiety, panic disorder, separation anxiety, which is seen in a lot of kids and even parents actually. Um, and those are just a few of the ways that anxiety can show up. Um, and even in terms of the duration of time, um, it could be present most of the time or even in short intense spurts, um, sometimes in the form of panic attacks. And in terms of how prevalent anxiety is, I mean, I'm sure it's something that we've all heard about, but it was found in 2017 that an estimated 284 million people worldwide experience it, making it actually the most prevalent mental health concern around the globe. Um, so, you know, if you or any of your loved ones do have this experience, just know you are not alone in this experience. Um, quite literally, it's a global experience, unfortunately. And I think four years later, I mean, I know that stat was from 2017. I can imagine with COVID that things have probably ramped up in terms of that as well. And one of the things that we're hoping to dive into in this episode is some tips and strategies for managing anxiety as well, which we'll get into in a little bit. Mm -hmm. 284 people, that's, that's, or 284 million people, sorry, that's, yeah. that's a lot of people. And I think you're right about COVID as well as I think we've seen a, a rise in anxiety, like during COVID. I know kind of, I know it's only anecdotal uh, kind of experiences and coming from like my experience with, with like my friends and my family, I think especially at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a, a lot of people on edge and a lot of people anxious. Um, and I think that's eased out a little bit more, but definitely the isolating factor of COVID doesn't really help either in terms of that anxiety response. And, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes those social connections are kind of buffers for anxiety and, you know, a lot of people might have been missing out on that this past uh, this past year. So I think that was a really good point as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, on the topic of social connections, I think it's definitely been great in terms of people have really found different ways to foster those connections. And I think that really speaks to the importance of, I keep saying this word, but connections. Um, and that's definitely been something tricky that I think a lot of us have had to navigate this year, even if it feels a bit 
easier now and hopefully in the upcoming months last year um it'll it'll continue to get easier who knows we'll see <laughs> hopefully we get to actually meet one another in person one of these days yes that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so i know we got a little bit off track talking about COVID. It's a very hot button topic. <laughs> um, but Mike, I was wondering if we could dive into some of the reasons why anxiety might come up as well as like the purpose that it's serving. Cause I think that's a reason why a lot of feelings come up. Let's say for anxiety. For sure. I think when talking about anxiety, like it's important to know why it kind of, why we have anxiety and it helps uh, normalize the experience a little bit to know that like, you know, there's a reason why we're having these reactions to certain things, right? So, um, and the interesting thing is that, like from my research is that um, anxiety is actually trying to help us. And so anxiety actually originates from tens of thousands of years ago when humans had to run away from like scary predators, like tigers or lions, or when we were living in caves and amongst the trees. Um, and this is one of my like favorite facts of the podcast because i try to imagine like you know back like tens of thousands of years ago we had this anxiety response which we still have today which is which is quite remarkable and so back back then we needed that response to help protect us because we were very defenseless against bigger and more dangerous animals but now anxiety is still trying to protect us from any unknown threats and so I like to think about being scared of the dark or even being scared of like the basement because there might be spiders down there or something that's like that's a little bit scary our anxiety is acting up to kind of protect us because it's it's the unknown and it's almost like almost like tens of thousands of years ago walking into a dark cave right like we would not have known what was in there and so our anxiety would have risen up to say like hey like maybe we shouldn't go in there or maybe we should be extra careful because we don't know what's there, right? Yeah, exactly. So from what you're telling us, Mike, it pretty much sounds like anxiety is serving our brains as a way to protect us from danger. I mean, even back in the day, but even now. But I think the tricky thing with anxiety is that sometimes it comes up down when there's there's not even any danger present and that's when it becomes really tricky and hard to manage, right? For sure, for sure. And I mean, I it, mean, you know, go ahead, Rishi. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, I was just going to say, like, even around the physical responses of anxiety, like our muscles tensing up and sweating, it's quite literally our body getting ready to fight or flight, to run or flight, um, which would be useful if there was a chance that we ran into a wild animal like a tiger or a bear on our walk to school, <laughs> like we might have back in the day. And Here's hoping none of us, our listeners, have had to fight a bear on their way to school or work, but our brains, in a way, can't tell the difference between that and going to a new school because both of them are scary and both can cause anxiety, and that's what it boils down to. For sure, for sure, and I mean, I'm glad that I don't have to worry about fighting any bears on my way to school, so uh yeah i will take the little bit of the anxiety of maybe going to a new school or starting in a new city or any any of those kind of other anxieties that even adults might have right so um and so i i know our, our listeners might be wondering you know what are the causes for anxiety like right now and because i know we kind of just mentioned a little bit of like why like where anxiety originated and so there are many reasons for anxiety and i'm sure yourself along with our listeners also have had those experiences there are many things that cause anxiety 
But um, one of the interesting facts of the podcast is that researchers at Stanford University found that children with larger amygdalas experience more anxiety. And so what is the amygdala? It's a really, really fun word to say for me. I think it's, it's really fun looking as well. Um, and the amygdala translates to almond in Latin because one of the parts of the amygdala is shaped like an almond. And so I don't know about you, Arushi, but I can never look at the word amygdala the same because yeah. I automatically think of almond every time I, I see the word amygdala. Yeah, 100%. This is quite literally my new favorite fun fact about the brain. <laughs> <laughs> and, and another cool fact is that we actually have two amygdalas. So we have one on each side of our brain. And typically, the amygdala is known more for the fear response uh, when we're in great danger. So if like a snake were to jump out at you on a hike, or if your friend comes up from behind you and scares you, we have that immediate response to jump back or jump away. And like, it's immediate, like we don't have to think about it. It happens super, super quickly. And the amygdala, we have to thank the amygdala for that. So the amygdala is really responsible to kickstarting that response. And that's more of the fear side of things. And we'll be talking about that in our next podcast episode on fear. So the amygdala will come up again, but in terms of our anxiety response to a fear, which like may or may not be there. And like I said, like kind of going to the basement, uh, seeing a dark basement, you might be scared of a spider, which may or may not be there, right? And um, it's thought that the amygdala might also be responsible for that. And this is because the amygdala is very, very good at evaluating things in the environment to determine how dangerous they are and then generating that emotional response. So have you ever seen the movie Home Alone? Yes, far too many times. <laughs> no one like Kevin McAllister, he like is looking downstairs and he doesn't want to go down there because there's that like scary furnace that he thinks yes. is like the amygdala might have caused that response for him, which oh. is something that is super interesting. So he kind of looked yeah. downstairs and he evaluated kind of whether there is danger or not, right? And some people there might be danger in the in the dark because you don't know it's there. And for other people, it might not be scary. So um yeah. And then there's also another reason for, or potential reason for anxiety, and that is the imbalance of neurotransmitters. So that's another fun word, neurotransmitters. I love it. Um, and simply neurotransmitters send messages between our neurons to our muscles, telling them what to do. Um, and so they're like the body's delivery drivers, just dropping off information to different cells in the body and then instructing them what to do at the end. And there's four main neurotransmitters. So there's serotonin, there's one called dopamine, there's one called norepinephrine, which is a fun word as well. And this one's my favorite coming up, gamma aminobutyric, otherwise known as GABA. So G-A-B-A. -A. Let's hear that one again. Gamma aminobutyric. And so serotonin and dopamine, they impact things like mood, sleep, appetite, energy levels, attention. Um, norepinephrine impacts our alertness and our readiness. And actually norepinephrine is actually re released in that fight or flight uh, kind of fear response. And GABA, so not the band ABBA, but GABA impacts <laughs> the balance of excitement, uh, feelings of calm and feeling relaxed. And so our brain, Arushi, it likes to be very, very happy. And what for it to be happy, it needs to be balanced overall. Um, and so it, having a balance of those neurotransmitters is more important than having high levels of just one. So 
Um, we want all of them to maybe be at like a five or a six rather than one being at a 10 and another one being at a two and then, you know, having that kind of uh, fluctuation. Yeah. And I like to think about it as making a batch of chocolate chip cookies. So do you have a favorite, favorite cookie recipe? I do. Yes, sir. What, what kind of cookie is it? Just a simple chocolate chip cookie. Oh, so chocolate chip cookies as well? Yeah, mine yeah. as well. I, I would say my mom makes the best chocolate chip cookies ever. But, but as you would know, like when you go to make that, those chocolate chip cookies, you need to follow a specific recipe. Um, and you, there needs to be a specific amount of each ingredient so that it could turn out good. And if you don't put enough flour or maybe you forget the eggs or you mistake salt for the sugar, which I've done before, don't ever do that. Oh, the, no. They do not taste good. Uh, the recipe might not turn out well. Um, and so you might still have a batch of cookies at the end, but they might not taste the same or they might not have the same texture as usual. Um, or they might flop totally. And I like to think of this as like, you know, some days we wake up and we're in a really good mood. Sometimes we wake up, we're not really in a, the best mood. And throughout the day, our mood can fluctuate as well. Just like that batch of cookies, they might turn out good one day, they might not turn out good the other, other day. But having the balance of those ingredients, much like our neurotransmitters, has a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so there's a lot of things that go into having this balanced brain. So the first one is your genes and not the ones that you put on every morning, but the ones that instruct your body what to do, uh, your diet, physical activity, sunlight, and, and much, much more. And all of these things can either increase or decrease these neurotransmitters, um, leaving your brain out of balance in the end or imbalance, depending on kind of what you do. So I know for me, running actually helps me feel balanced and it helps my brain feel balanced and we know that running and physical activity can actually stimulate the re release of serotonin dopamine and norepinephrine so it kind of makes sense a little bit that when i go for a run i usually feel a little bit more balanced that day and even throughout the week when i stay steady with it so yeah, yeah. and alternatively to that i know for me meditation really helps in terms of kind of balancing out those levels which is literally the complete opposite of being active and going for a run but more so being really still, which I think a lot of us don't get a chance to do quite often. So it's interesting that they're pretty much two contrasting ways that have the same effect on the brain. I, I agree. I agree. And one of the coolest facts that I think I ever learned about the brain and neurotransmitters is I actually learned this from another podcast that I listened to. Um, it's just a very nerdy, sciencey podcast. And, uh, and one of the facts that I heard is that, you know, if you're someone who gets up every morning and you make a pot of coffee, Mm -hmm. um, when you turn on that pot of coffee every morning, your brain will actually depress itself in anticipation of that caffeine, which is super interesting because like even that small action of, and that repetitive action of making coffee every day, um, your brain kind of adapts and is like, okay, I'm about to get a caffeine kick. So I should depress myself a little bit. And so mm -hmm. don't ever, anyone listening, do not try to cut like caffeine out cold turkey if you're making coffee in the morning don't go straight to decaf coffee because your brain's going to depress itself and you might not be in a great mood that day yep that is very relatable because i have definitely tried a couple times to soft drinking coffee and it clearly does not work because i have my iced coffee sitting right beside me i see yours in your spider-man cup today and it's it's just not happening but if any of our listeners are considering that Please take Mike's words into consideration. <laughs> Listen, in my opinion, coffee is what makes the world go round. So I, I don't think I could ever. I don't think I could ever cut it out. Yep, as I've told you, in our apartment, we have four different coffee machines. Even though only one of them gets used, we have to have four between the three of us, and that's just that's just the way it works. 
Alrighty. Well, thank you for all of that really, really interesting information about the brain mic. And I was hoping that's something we could also jump into. I know I touched on it a little bit earlier, but some of the different ways anxiety can impact us. So I thought a good way to break it down would be looking at it in terms of the ABCs of how anxiety impacts us. So for the A, the affect, emotionally and physically. So anxiety can impact what we feel in our body. So as Mike mentioned earlier, anxiety can show up physically through things like tummy aches, which as I mentioned, I also experienced when we first started recording this, headaches, dizziness, a racing heartbeat, so many different ways, um, just depending on the person. <laughs> Um, and B, behavior, behaviorally. So what we do in our actions, again, tying back to the fight or flight, um, we may continuously avoid a situation, which as it turns out, actually reinforces our anxiety and doesn't really help us out in the long run, which is kind of where I think the phrase face your fears comes from a little bit, which we'll chat about a little bit more going forward. It might also come up behaviorally in the form of seeking reassurance. Um, in terms of the C, cognition, mentally, what goes through our mind like worrisome thoughts. D would stand for dependence. So in the context of children, for example, this may look like relying on parents or another loved one um, for support through an experience, which isn't always the worst thing because it definitely does help to turn to loved ones. But I think when it becomes a point where there's certain situations where you can't tackle yourself at all, that's kind of where the D and the dependence jumps in a little bit for the ABCs of anxiety. In terms of the E, excess and extreme, anxiety can be a bit of a problem when it becomes excessive and extreme in relation to a situation. So I guess when it kind of, as I mentioned, interferes with things like school, work, um, completing any daily tasks, even hanging around people that you generally would feel comfortable with. And lastly, functioning how an individual manages each day and, as I mentioned, their daily activities. So clearly anxiety can impact us in quite a few different ways, um, which I think is also why in terms of when we look at interventions, there are so many different interventions that come to light because it functions and comes up in many different ways. And like, I'm just curious, Rishi, is there one of these and the ABCs that like resonates with you the most that like when you're anxious, like it impacts um, one of them more than the other? Or is there a lot of like, do you feel kind of everything whenever you get anxiety? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think for me, I definitely feel it physically the most um, in terms of like the racing heartbeat and some tummy aches a little bit, kind of like butterflies, but in a more intense way. Um, but I think as a whole, the AB, well, I guess in this case, the A to the F, they can all interact with each other, um, which can be really hard to deal with because it's like things happening on all ends. What about you? Is there one that kind of resonates with you the most? Or would you say it's like an interaction? I would say for me, mostly it's like functioning. I find that like, I very much get like a freeze response sometimes when I have anxiety. And so it really impacts like what I can do that day sometimes. And you kind of feel a little bit uh, immobilized by anxiety and like maybe it might impact, you know, uh, how, how much homework I do that day or like how many friends I talk to that day. Sometimes you just need that space. And so I actually get that kind of freeze response, um, which is which is kind of interesting. I just like need my space and like, you know, just need to take some self-care time for myself. So totally. I think that's something worth mentioning as well. I know we've kind of touched on fight or flight, but I think more recently it's kind of come to light that it actually might be flight, fight or freeze because that is mm -hmm. a common response that comes up also. Definitely. And I can definitely relate to 
the freeze part as well. There are definitely some days where I just want to toss my phone out the window, keep to myself and you know what, that helps for those days. So I think there's, I don't actually toss my phone. I should mention that, <laughs> but um, that that's what's needed some days. And I think that's completely okay. As long as it's not a, a constant. Definitely. Definitely. And there's actually another unique way to that anxiety impacts us and um, anxiety can actually impact um, our ability to perceive changes in facial expression. So um, it's found that people with anxiety are quicker to perceive changes in facial expressions of other people. Um, and even though it can, you can pick up on those changes uh, quicker, um, they are sometimes a little bit less accurate. But still, I think that's a pretty interesting um, impact of anxiety is just being able to pick up on those cues a little bit better. Um, and so the tendency to sometimes jump to conclusions being that highly anxious people will often make mistakes when trying to infer other people's emotional states and intentions. And so sometimes this, this can kind of cause some issues in terms of um, creating tension with others and maybe creating some conflict in relationships. Um, and so if you are feeling anxious, keep in mind that, that what you think others are thinking or feeling might not necessarily be right. Um, and so it might be a little bit misleading. You know, I might perceive that Arushi, you're mad at me right now, but even though you're not mad at me, I know that you're not actually mad at me, but, but uh, you know, if I was anxious, I could, I could maybe take a, maybe a look or like something the wrong way, just because I'm picking up on those cues a little bit better. Um, yeah. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it really is. And to me, it kind of almost sounds like the brain's playing a bit of a trick on ourselves when things like that happen. And I think that also really speaks to the importance of separating your anxiety and worries from yourself and understanding that even though you know, the brain is trying to protect you and help you in a way, um, understanding that in this case, it, it might not be. And being able to separate yourself from that, I think also ends up being a little bit helpful when you start diving into different intervention strategies. Definitely. So in the context of the CYDC and our work with children and youth, we also thought it might be kind of interesting to dive into how anxiety impacts children. Because I know, as we mentioned, anxiety impacts 284 million people worldwide, as reported in 2017. But quite a large chunk of that population includes children and adolescents. So I'd like to take a moment to tell you guys a little bit more about that. So anxiety affects upwards of 20% of children and adolescents over the lifespan. And for anxious children and youth, they, this can present in a bunch of different ways. So for example, anxious youth may come off as quiet and well-behaved and often fly under the radar of their parents, teachers, and coaches because their anxiety isn't present in, I guess, a, a typical kind of outward way, but internally they may be experiencing quite a lot tying into the sea of anxiety cognition. It could all be up here, but not coming out in terms of the B, their behavior. On the other hand, a child's anxiety may push them in the direction of acting out, you guys can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes around that, um, or having intense emotional reactions, and unfortunately being labeled as the quote-unquote bad kid in the class. However, it is really important to separate the child's anxiety from the child themselves, and understand that with the right support and with patience, you and your child, or a child that you may know, will be able to show anxiety who's in control and gain some power over the situation. And in the context of children, some of the most common types of anxiety that show up in kids, as I mentioned, are generalized anxiety, separation anxiety, which I'm sure many of you parents have also experienced, which often comes up when children first go to school or even daycare. 
social anxiety, or even specific phobias of the dark, and now fears around COVID are also super common. So clearly there are lots of different ways anxiety can present itself, um, but especially in children, which can be very tricky because we can't always tell what kids are feeling. Um, and sometimes they don't have the tools to express those feelings either. And so, yeah, so another interesting thing as well is for, for kids that anxiety might lead to um, a disruption or interruption um, and them participating in a variety of uh, typical childhood experiences like attending school. So attendance might actually drop off. It might impact um, their participation in social, athletic or recreational clubs. And it might impact, you know, them meeting uh, age expected demands like sleeping through the night or doing homework or making friends. So anxiety's impacts can be vast. And uh, and um, these are some of the examples that might happen in a, like for like typically throughout childhood. So. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it's really tricky because I feel like when these conversations around thoughts and feelings and worries aren't had with kiddos, they often don't know that these feelings are not that they're not normal, but they don't know how to share when it becomes too overwhelming because they may not even be able to identify that themselves. Definitely. Definitely. I think, I think, you know, kind of recognizing when it might become a problem is something that's like important, right? Because, uh, you know, missing school, maybe one or two days a year might not be that bad, even if it is anxiety related. But if school, uh, if they aren't attending school for like maybe big chunks of time, um, then it might become a problem, a larger issue. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes, as you mentioned yourself, Mike, sometimes a healthy dose of anxiety can also be good for us. Um, recently, there's a, been a, a term coined um, for good stress called eustress, which keeps us motivated and exciting about things. But in terms of anxiety, I guess on the more positive end of it, it could pose as a warning sign for bringing awareness about a current situation or changes in life. It could also be used as an opportunity for self-growth. And some people say, and this applies to both children and adults, that a healthy dose of anxiety can keep us motivated and prepared to face challenges. There has been some research that's actually shown that students and athletes who experience some anxiety actually displayed greater performance on tests or while participating in competitive sports. But of course, as I mentioned, all of this again ties into a healthy dose of anxiety, not when you know your cup becomes too full and things are hard to face. It's also been found that people who have experienced anxiety may be more empathetic and understanding to the issues that others face, knowing what they've also experienced either internally or externally if others are aware. And lastly, it's also been found that people with anxiety may also be skilled in leadership roles as they take careful consideration of the possibility of different outcomes. Um, so for example, people with anxiety can describe, may describe it as a sensation of being highly aware and because of this high awareness, they may be able to tell when things may potentially go wrong. They may be cautious thinkers, careful decision makers, and great problem solvers. So I think while it's easy to kind of talk about the many negatives that come up with anxiety, and of course there are some, I think it could also help sometimes to approach it from a different lens and highlight some of the positives about it. Um, even when having a conversation with a friend or even when trying to explain what anxiety is to a child. For sure. And I think like from my experiences so far working with kids, like I've, I've been working with kids for almost, oh my gosh, five or six years now. It's been a pretty, pretty decent amount of time. Um, mm -hmm. And that's one thing that I have noticed is a lot of 
kids who are unique and might have some emotional challenges or maybe even learning challenges a lot there's a lot of strengths that do come from them and a lot of the kids that i've worked with whether they have anxiety or uh even a learning disability or a learning difficulty a lot of them are very empathetic and understanding and super caring and so i think sometimes it's important to kind of focus on those positives and some of those strengths of the child instead of focusing on the, the negative aspects of anxiety as well a hundred percent. I think there's definitely a silver lining to a lot of experiences and feelings. And I think highlighting that can also be really helpful and kind of show yourself, but also a kiddo, hey, even if you're experiencing anxiety, there's also a whole bunch of strengths that you have going for you. And it's not it's not all bad. And even kind of kind of I think adopting that mindset can also help with tackling and facing that anxiety and ultimately hopefully eradicating it. For sure. For sure. And with, with those positives, there like there are some challenges, some additional challenges. And those are the ones that I had mentioned before, which is, you know, anxiety can become very troublesome when it interferes with the child's or the individual's ability to engage in everyday life. Um, like I, and these can include school and, like I said, clubs and activities and um, seeing their friends and um, even sleep is a big challenge with anxiety as well. Um, with those over worries and um, I think one of the biggest signs and examples is when it like when they ex experience um, a high level of distress and anxiety over a very long period of time so you know it, like we had mentioned before um, it's okay to have some anxiety here or there everyone experiences anxiety at some point but eventually it kind of ends and so when we do have the, that anxiety over a long period of time that's when it could become um, particularly concerning and important things to consider uh, maybe the amount of anxiety that the child is feeling uh, mm -hmm. the level of it how long it's been going on how much it gets in the way of their functioning and how distressing it is for the child um, and those around them mm -hmm. and uh, most importantly it's important to remember uh, to separate your child's anxiety um, from your child and look at it as something that the both of you can tackle together so I think um the importance is kind of working through it together with the kiddo um rather than kind of letting them deal with it on their own and um i think that's super important as well absolutely yeah i think that really speaks to the collaborative collaborative um nature of a lot of the strategies that i'm about to mention right now in terms of using them together with your child to tackle it so that the child doesn't feel like you know, it's the, the parent against them or the therapist against them, but it's a collaborative group effort that we are trying to get rid of this worry or this anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I think even just being empathetic, it can be useful, you know, like, like I mentioned, a lot of people, most people have experienced anxiety. So and it's never a pleasant experience. So if you are working with a kid, or if, if, it, if it's your own kid, you know, just being empathetic with them and understanding what they might be going through and just having an open space for them to share that can be um, very important as well. Mm -hmm, for sure. I think even a little bit of empathy goes a long way, um, regardless of who you are, what your age is, what you're experiencing. So for sure. Thanks for mentioning that. So I guess the moment we've all been waiting for, we talked lots about anxiety, the ways it comes up, the reasons, the good, the bad. The amygdala. The amygdala, the almond, all of that. <laughs> But the big question is, how do you reduce anxiety? How do you cope with it? And how do we ultimately eradicate it for good? So I guess the first point I'd like to make is that, especially when you're initially approaching your anxiety or even your child's, try to, for the goal to not be to 
initially eliminate it completely, but to manage it. So we'll talk about this in the context of children, but please know that this could apply to any age group. But say you're working with a child, of course, nobody wants to see a child feel unhappy. And one of the best ways to help kids over income anxiety isn't to remove the stressors that trigger it or avoid a situation or remove the situation completely. It's to assist them in learning how to tolerate this anxiety and worry and function as best as they can, even when they're feeling anxious. And ultimately, as a byproduct of that, the anxiety will decrease or hopefully fall away slowly over time. And that's not to say that you or the kiddo will never feel anxious again, but if you ever do, the kid will have the, and you will have the tools for how to manage it. And this can come up in the form of different relaxation strategies, um, experience with CBT, which is something that Mike kind of talked about earlier in one of our previous episodes. And relaxation and CBT also do go hand in hand because that is a portion of it. And that are that is some of the ways um, a child or you could also manage it. One of the biggest things though that people try to point out is to not avoid things just because it makes you or a child feel anxious. This might seem like a great short-term solution to stop the tears, stop the screaming, whatever is going on. But at the end of the day, avoiding it just reinforces the anxiety in the long run. So if a child in an uncomfortable situation gets upset and starts to cry, not to be you know, dramatic or to throw a tantrum for no reason really, but genuinely just because that's how they feel and their parents remove them out of the situation, She's learned that that crying would be a good coping mechanism to rid the anxiety and rid herself of the situation. And that cycle has the potential to repeat itself. And in one of our upcoming episodes, actually, we're going to talk a little bit about fears and facing your fears. And I think with those strategies, we have a couple of really good concrete examples on how to slowly introduce a fear or an anxiety inducing situation to a child in a way that's approachable and makes it less scary. So stay tuned for that. And lastly, going forward, expressing positive but realistic expectations for your kiddo. So sometimes kids do have very realistic fears. I mean, as I mentioned, COVID is one of the biggest things coming that's been coming to light for children's anxiety. And that is a very valid thing to feel anxious about. So we can't tell a child that their fears are unrealistic, especially if we know ourselves that they are realistic. And it is important to validate the child's feeling. However, but you can express confidence in the child that they are going to be okay. They'll be able to manage it. And as they face their fears, their anxiety level will drop over time. Giving the child the confidence that your expectations are realistic and that you're never gonna push them to do something that they can't handle, but gradually expose them to the situation in a way that's not harmful. So those are some of the ways that came to mind for me when I was kind of looking a little bit more into this topic. Um, but I'm curious, Mike, for you, in the past, when you've experienced anxiety, were there, I know you mentioned running, but were there any other strategies that you kind of found yourself self-implementing, even if you weren't really conscious of it, that ended up being helpful tools in the long run? Uh, I think for me, just having people around me to kind of talk to and just kind of help buffer that anxiety. Um, and much like many of these coping strategies with like not avoiding it and expressing positive and realistic expectations a lot of my friends and family they aren't trying to negate the anxiety but they're allowing me to just give they just give me the space to express my anxiety and um and they're just kind of they they even recognize that it's a real experience and um and i think for me on the other other side as well something that i've learned um 
in the past is the saying, which always helps me whenever I'm anxious. I know you had kind of said uh, like kind of unconsciously, but consciously, one thing that I always try to do and remember is the saying, be where your feet are planted. And um, that's a very helpful coping technique for me and grounding technique, because even while, while you're gearing up to do a presentation or something, you kind of get that anxiety and you're, you're not in the moment, you're thinking ahead of time. And so mm-hmm. sometimes that saying sticks to me because I actually pay attention to a kind of my feet and where they are and kind of the feeling on the bottom of my feet so that it kind of brings me back into the moment. Um, mm-hmm. And I think like even strategies like that are, are super helpful just to help ground you back into the moment and um, reduce that anxiety for a little bit. So. Yeah, 100%. I think there's a lot to speak on in terms of grounding while feeling anxious, which can be really hard to do when you're in that anxious state, um, which is why I think for, for any parents listening, it may even be helpful for you to familiarize yourself with grounding or relaxation techniques. So that way, when your kiddo's anxiety pops up, there's no question, you know what mm-hmm. to do and how to move forward. And when all else fails, as Mike mentioned, be where your feet are. Exactly. And that would be like managing it. So that'd be number one, like managing. Yeah, exactly. So I think that is what we have today for our episode on anxiety. So yeah, I I agree. So would you want to take the fun fact this week and, and let our listeners know what our fun fact is about anxiety? I would love to. Okay, great. So I will say just a disclaimer, I felt a little bit silly typing in fun facts about anxiety initially on Google because I'm like, I don't know what's going to come up here. But (laughs) I actually found something that I thought was quite interesting. So I'll share it all with you. So something that we may not know is that anxiety can actually confuse your sense of smell. So research from the Journal of Neuroscience found that individuals with anxiety are more likely to label neutral smells as bad smells. And when it comes to smelling smells, the olfactory system gets activated. But often when you feel anxious, your emotional system becomes intertwined with this olfactory system, which I thought was pretty neat and interesting. And I'm, I'm curious as to what they mean by a neutral smell. But that's yeah. also a fun fact for the week. That's interesting. I'm going to have to start paying attention to uh, if I smell something bad, I'm going to have to be, start reminding myself, like, am I anxious right now? Or is, is there actually a bad smell? Right. It might, it might make it a little bit more confusing for me in my daily life, but it, it is a fun fact nonetheless. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So do you have anything else uh, to kind of add for this podcast? Uh, nope. I think I am good for this week. How about you, Mike? Yeah, I think I think that's pretty much it. I think we covered anxiety pretty well. And yeah, I'll never forget. I think for me, the fun fact of the episode is that amygdala means almond in latin because it it changes the way that i'll look at the word amygdala forever oh yeah for sure (laughs) so thank you all for tuning in this week and if you would like to reach out to us or you have any questions or comments uh, about the podcast you can email us as always at cydcpodcast at gmail.com and i would also like to thank colin king our supervisor for giving us this opportunity to make this podcast um it's been a really great experience and uh, it wouldn't be possible without him yeah 100 percent. so oh sorry mike (laughs) i was just gonna say we will see uh i guess we'll see everyone next week hopefully on the podcast we'll be talking about fear and phobias um so we will see the return of the amygdala and uh and that sounds like a horror movie (laughs) the return (laughs) of the amygdala (laughs) 
but we will see everyone or i guess you guys will all hear us next week on the on the show and uh thank you all for listening awesome thank you everyone bye